Welcome to the Modern Mobility Podcast, brought to you by Modern Mobility Partners. This podcast is for transportation planners and enthusiasts who want to learn practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges. And now, here are your co-hosts, certified transportation planners, national experts, and thought leaders, Kelly Kemp and Kirsten Moat. Well, welcome to episode 22 of the Modern Mobility Podcast. I am Kelly Kemp. And I'm Kirsten Moat. And we are your fabulous co-hosts today. And today's episode, we are going to provide an overview of the Title VI program for fixed route transit providers across the United States and give you six steps to completing a Title VI analysis. This is really a more in-depth look at the Title VI requirements and guidelines for Federal Transit Administration or FTA recipients, and that ensures compliance with Title VI regulations and encourages meaningful analysis when determining impacts. Today, we are joined by our guest, Hunter Abel, also with Modern Mobility Partners. And Hunter joined our team last year, and this is his first time on the Mod Mob podcast, so we are excited to welcome him. Welcome, Hunter. Yeah, hi. Hello, Kelly, Kirsten. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to discuss this important topic in transit today. Wonderful. So uh, first, I'm going to give you a little bit of background or give our listeners a little background on what the definition of the Title VI program is. So, you know, let's start with the origins of the Title VI requirements and guidelines that we see today and then who's required to prepare a Title VI program. The origins of the federal requirements come from Title VI, go figure, of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And that protects people from discrimination based on race, color, and national origin and programs and activities receiving federal funding, which includes those provided by state and local DOTs and most public transit agencies. Did I get that about right, Hunter? Yeah, Kelly, that's right. So Title VI has been around for several decades now, and it's gone through many revisions since then as well. More specifically, the FTA guidance we see today, Circular 4702, was last updated in 2012. However, the FTA actually just wrapped up an input session from riders and transit providers uh, across the U.S. last year in 2022. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see some changes coming soon. And uh, maybe that'll be a reason we come back and do a part two to this to uh, discuss those changes. Yeah, you never know. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, how COVID impacts folks responses and stuff, too. So that'll that'll be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the Title VI regulations apply to any agency receiving federal funding. So you've got your state DOTs here in Georgia. That's the Georgia Department of Transportation. Uh, You've got MPOs, which are metropolitan planning organizations, and just about every public transit agency across the U.S. Uh, So agencies are required to develop and submit a Title VI program and update that program every three years to USDOT, uh, or in this case, the FTA with transit agencies. And so there are also specific requirements for Title VI programs. They can vary based on the size of the service area population uh, for transit agencies, which is generally the city or county population they're operating in and the number of vehicles they operate. Excellent. Let's talk a little bit about some general program requirements. Um, So Hunter, what are some of the general requirements for all Title VI programs? 
Yeah, there's really eight elements of every Title VI program, regardless of the size of the transit agency or service area population. Some of those include the notice of rights under Title VI, uh, how to file a complaint, and a copy of that complaint form, the list of Title VI investigations, complaints, or lawsuits, a public participation plan, as well as a limited English proficiency plan, the racial breakdown of uh, any advisory councils that consist of non-elected people, and then the narrative describing the subrecipient monitoring. Uh, and finally, the Board of Directors resolution or meeting minute demonstrating the board approval of this submitted Title VI program. So it, it seems like a lot of these elements are more related to the administration of the Title VI program, um, really to ensure a transparent policy. However, others, such as the public participation plan and the limited English proficiency plans, really require agencies to think through how they can provide reasonable steps to ensure meaningful involvement and communication from all community members and those specifically affected by transit agency decisions, which is really critical. Um, and then from there, the Title VI regulations are then determined by the type of agency, the service modes operated, and the service area population, like Hunter mentioned a minute ago. Okay, so let's get into some of the additional regulations and guidelines specifically for transit providers for fixed route uh, transit. So today we're talking specifically about fixed route transit providers, which are transit agencies that provide typical bus route or rail services, while agencies that operate demand response, which is primarily those in rural areas, you know, they're still required to complete all the general Title VI program requirements discussed earlier. They are not responsible for these additional reporting requirements. Right, Kelly. And from there, there's additional thresholds for fixed route providers based on how they operate and the service area population that they operate within. Uh, so the first set of operating requirements is really based on whether the agency operates in a large urbanized area, uh, which are those considered to be greater than 200,000 people in population, as well as receiving 5307 funding, uh, which is a FTA formula fund available to those urban areas. And then the second threshold is primarily for larger transit agencies, uh, which are those operating 50 or more fixed drive vehicles in peak service. So this is a, you know, 8 a.m., 5 p.m., how many trains or buses are you operating? And if it's 50 or more, then these requirements are going to apply to you down the road. And so if your transit agency is meeting those thresholds that we just talked about, the 200,000 population or operating 50 or more vehicles, then they're required to set system-wide service standards and policies for operating and providing transit service within their communities. Uh, so the larger transit agencies are also required to submit customer demographic and survey data, as well as an evaluation of service and fare equity changes, which we're going to go into a little bit later, and then continuously monitor their transit services as well. So when we talk about the general requirements of system-wide standards and policies, we're really referring to agency-specific and adopted guidelines that specify how the service is designed, implemented, and provided in a way that prevents discrimination on the basis of those protected under the Title VI classes, which are race, 
color, or national origin. So, Hunter, what is the difference between a service standard and a service policy? Right. That's a great question, Kirsten. So service standards are going to be more of the quantitative thresholds that an agency evaluates its service from, uh, while the service policies are referring more to the qualitative measures for how transit agencies make decisions about their service. And the FTA provides a list of some of the required and uh, recommended service standards and policies within Circular 4702 as well. So I would definitely recommend checking that out. Uh, but some of the service standards might include uh, vehicle load. So this is how many people are on a vehicle before it's considered full. You know, if you're looking at a 40-foot bus, there's typically about 38 to 42 seats on there. And most transit agencies would consider vehicle loads to be around uh, 1.3 times the number of seats or so. So if you think there's 40 seats, that vehicle is going to be full around 55 people. So, and that's where we consider... So they're assuming everybody's standing. <laughs> All right. So that's assuming 40 people are sitting. You got about 10 people standing in the aisle. And now that bus is considered overloaded. Yeah. So the agency really needs to take some type of action to evaluate how to resolve that. Uh, so yeah. vehicle headway, that's how frequent that's the service is. So, you know, you've got more frequent routes that are generally considered around the 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, while less frequent routes might come every 45 to 60 minutes. Uh, another on-time performance. Uh, so this is really getting at how reliable the service is. Generally, most agencies for fixed route bus set around the you know 75 to 80% mark. Uh, so that means 80% of your buses are showing up to their stops within about a five-minute allotted window. So that's interesting because then that means like one out of five times you're you can assume your bus is going to be late more than five minutes right yeah and it it's i think it's meant to cover those rush hour times when the bus might be going through yeah you know, who knows what some days yeah i mean some of it's just out of their control sometimes yeah and then the last one that fta provides for service standards is service availability so this is really how the service is distributed throughout your service area uh, your stop spacing requirements so a lot of agencies, for example, when they're in urban areas, look at stops every eighth of a mile or, you know, 800 feet or something. While in more suburban or rural areas, you might have stops every quarter of a mile. And then also how you measure your service area, kind of like catchment area. So that's the percentage of population mm -hmm. that is within walking distance of your bus stops, uh, which most agencies generally consider yeah. around a quarter mile as well. And so after those service standards, we're also looking at service policies, which again are more of those qualitative measures for how you're distributing and assigning service. Uh, so some of those that the FTA points out here are how you distribute transit amenities. So how you decide what bus stops get shelters, benches, and other amenities. Uh, generally, transit agencies typically look for around 25 boardings or so per average weekday to warrant a shelter. And really the FTA is looking at what guidelines do you have in place to make sure you have warrants uh, or standards for when these amenities go in. And you're not just throwing them out there whenever you want kind of thing. Uh, and the second one is vehicle assignment. So this yeah. is how you decide where to place new vehicles 
at depots or garages. And whether you know you want to uh, maintain an average age of vehicles across all of the bus depots, but also how vehicles are assigned to the route. So maybe you have a situation where you have a really high ridership route and you've got 60 foot articulated or the, the bendy boy buses mm-hmm. uh, on that route and you want to make sure you're assigning those you know higher capacity buses to the routes with high ridership. That's a perfectly good policy. You just need to make sure that you have that written out in your Title VI program. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like making sure that you're documenting all of your assumptions is a big part of that for that transparency. Absolutely. Yeah. Something that your passengers and your partner in jurisdictions can go back and refer to and say, this is how the trans agency is is making those decisions. Right. And it's consistent. Yeah. So this is just my own personal opinion. I've got I've got some beef with the <laughs> with the transit amenities and the shelters because <laughs> um, you know i like i understand that you can't fund and put in shelters everywhere like it's it's typically a funding and, and fiscal issue but i just i just have a hard time like getting behind saying well you know these people they don't have you know their bus stop isn't frequented as much but you've got this one person who, I don't know, might be older, might be disabled, um, and because they don't have the proper boardings, they don't qualify for some of those bus stop, I call them necessities. Yeah, yeah. In some, in some cases, not amenities. And um, I've, I've, had, I've had a lot of discussions with transit agencies in the, in the past about this, and you know, their response a lot of times is, well, we don't have a problem with you putting in one. Yeah. We're just not going to do it because it doesn't meet our threshold. So Right. And then there's I maintaining it, too. The cost of maintaining it is always an issue. Right. Who's going to pay for maintenance? Yeah. 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 But I don't know. Like, it, it just, um, it's just something that kind of, like, grinds my gears. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I remember when we were working on a comprehensive transportation plan a few years ago here in the Atlanta metro area. And um, it was in a traditionally underserved community, for the most part, and um, historically underserved. And a lot of, you know, transit stops or bus stops, but n- very few amenities very few uh, benches, let alone shelters. And so, you know, it was, and then we went back and looked at the ridership per bus stop to see, okay, are there any that qualify? Um, And a lot of times what you'll find is that, you know, if you're looking at minimum ridership as a requirement, um, you know, sometimes they will qualify. There's just not money and you just need to let the transit operator know so they can get into the queue. Doesn't mean that they got the money to do it, but at least they're in the queue and it brings it to their attention. But even so, to Kirsten's point, you know, it's also like a chicken and the egg situation too. You know, if there were a bus shelter, maybe more people would ride it. My fear when I would drive down this road in this um, plan area, I would see you know, I, it would always break my heart. I'd see like this elderly woman standing out there two feet from the road. There's no sidewalk. She's standing in the dirt next to the bus stop sign. 
and it's like in between the road and a railroad track, nowhere to go. And it would be 95 degrees out. And I was like, this woman's going to kill over from a heat stroke, you know, needs to have some, some shelter. So, and be able to sit down. So I agree. I, th- I mean, there's, I think there's a fundamental um, flaw in that, but there's also so only so much money to go around, you know, so just figuring out, you know, how do you spread the wealth there? But yeah, that's a challenge. And I think every transit agency, you know, you have these requirements for a certain boarding level, but you also make sure you leave yourself an opportunity to go out and address those special cases where you have, you know, uh, 12 people yeah. boarding at a aging or, you know, older senior care living facility. Let's go ahead and address that concern today right. rather than wait for it to meet that threshold. And also yeah. another good strategy for ensuring that you have a boarding requirement is sometimes doing some stop relocations or consolidation almost. So if you have two stops that are, you know, 400 feet apart or so from each other mm-hmm. and they both have 13 people boarding, you bring those to the middle and all of a sudden you have a stop that warrants a shelter. And yeah. a lot of times people want, you know, the shelter and the amenities That's, there yeah, for a little bit longer of a walk. Yeah. No, I think you're dead on. That's such a great point. Yeah. And, and That's I, a good point. I was just going to say that I think also, like, back to your point about having some case-by-case situations, I think just documenting that to say, okay, if there's a minimum ridership requirement, you get these types of amenities. However, XYZ is also considered, you know, such as proximity to, you know, um, an elder, you know, a senior center or something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was going to be my question is within these Title VI programs, should you or is it typical practice to document some of those special circumstances or special cases where the policy may not be followed exactly? Yeah, and I think we'll get into this in the service equity analysis too, but as long as you have the justification there and you you make your case to FTA, really that's what they're looking for. You might have these policies, but if you have a special case and you have the justification to do it, then do it, I say. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. Okay. So Kirsten, I have a question. If you're a transit provider in an urban area with less than 50 transit vehicles at peak service, does that mean that your title six requirements just stop right there? Yeah. I mean, from a title six program perspective, you're good. However, you know, if you're, if you're that large or if you're still pretty large, you may not have 50 vehicles and you have the resources, it's still really good practice to pursue those additional requirements, such as doing the fair and service equity analysis, um, especially from an equity standpoint. And if you're a transit agency, kind of right on that line of operating 50 or more vehicles, it's it's probably better to err on the side of caution and go ahead and and do those additional requirements. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, Hunter, I know we're going to talk today about steps to completing a service equity analysis, right? You mentioned that earlier. Right. And these are the steps that are really only requirements for larger transit agencies, like Kirsten mentioned, but it's also a great habit to build even for smaller agencies, because eventually you might be doing this. If you're operating at 46 vehicles today, and then you go out and, you know, deploy a new route, now all of a sudden you're 50 or more vehicles and you've got to start doing this. Uh, but also to ensure that 
any of the service modifications or maybe you're doing a fare increase, you just want to make sure that you're not causing disparate mm-hmm. impacts or disproportionate burdens within your community. Yeah, that's great. So let's get into some recommended steps for completing a service equity yeah, analysis. We're, so we're really going to break it down into six steps here today. And while the exact procedure should ultimately be driven by your transit agency's approved Title VI program, these are some of the steps outlined in FTA Circular to incorporate into your service equity analysis. Uh, So for the purpose of conducting a service equity analysis, it's really meant to be analyzed before you implement the service to determine whether any of the proposed changes you're looking at have a disparate impact on the basis of race. And so we've talked a lot about Title VI specific requirements today, but the FTA also recognizes the significance of service changes on low-income populations as well, who may be more transit-dependent. Therefore, when you're doing this service equity analysis, FTA wants you to go ahead and include any potential uh, disproportionate burdens that might be placed on those low-income populations as well. And so the FTA also recommends reaching out to their regional offices for additional guidance and technical assistance if you do need help going through any of this analysis. Okay, and I think it would be good in our show notes to include links to how to get that information or get that additional support with FTA. Yeah, definitely. And Mm -hmm. there's a PowerPoint with some slides. Uh, The circular is also a great reference. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has an appendix with some example maps and charts that you can run through as well. Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, So step one is really identifying what constitutes a major service change for you as a transit agency. And this should really refer back to those service standards and policies that we've talked about earlier. And this should also be board adopted. Uh, So you should have these written somewhere in your planning department uh, for reference. And so, for example, one category that you might have for a major service change is whether a route is modified 25% of its route uh, for miles or hours, whether they're being added or removed. um, (laughs) That might be considered a major service change for your agency. Uh, Or whether it's uh, maybe you're adding a new route or removing routes entirely. These are all things that typically have major impacts to people's daily commuting and getting around their community. So we want to make sure that we're reviewing those. However, these uh, standards would typically exclude any demonstration or pilot projects that are lasting less than a year or 12 months. Um, But if they are going to stay in place, you do want to make sure that you go back and do that Title VI analysis uh, if they're going to be kept permanently. Um, And then the transit agency should also ensure that there's a, a good amount of public engagement built into this the decision-making process for developing these policies of what constitutes a major service change overall as well. Are there any specific requirements for the public engagement piece, or is that really up to the agency to, to, to determine what public engagement looks like? Yeah, so this was one of the general requirements we mentioned earlier, and the FTA does provide some guidance to ensure Uh, that you're promoting a more inclusive public participation environment and some of the proactive strategies and procedures that you might want to include in your agency's public participation plan as well. Uh, So some of these include meetings at convenient times, accessible locations, 
utilizing different meeting sizes even, uh, as well as like different formats of meetings. So maybe you have open houses, uh, maybe you have opportunities where people can do a Q&A in front of an audience so people can hear kind of the back and forth. You also have alternating advertising platforms. Uh, so this is really how you do your outreach. Maybe you're sending a large mass text or you're putting in the newspaper. You could even do a billboard. And then also varying community interaction. So making sure you're staying involved with the community outside of just these times where you're going to talk with them about service modifications. Yeah, and, it, it, you know, these guidelines are, you know, pretty consistent with other agencies and just general be best practices for public outreach. And um, I'll just mention that the Modern Mobility Podcast has several episodes where we discuss public <laughs> engagement techniques and strategies. So if you're looking for some additional guidance in this area, please take a look at our library of episodes. We've got a lot in there um, that can really provide some good guidance. Uh, one in particular from this season is our first episode on the planning emphasis areas. This is area four, public involvement or public engagement. Um, and so take a look back. We, we provide some tips and tricks for, you know, making it robust and meaningful. Yeah, Kirsten, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. And one more thing on public engagement before we move on to step two. You know, I would think also because of the nature of the Title VI analysis and it being related to transit, that a good amount of your engagement can happen at you know, say, um, rail stations or, you know, major um, bus transfer facilities and stuff like that to make sure that you're engaging directly with the population and making it as easy as possible as well. And even including like some advertisements on, on the buses and everything. Yeah, that that's a great point. Making sure that the mm -hmm. locations you choose for public involvement are accessible via transit, uh, particularly when it's about transit yeah. is very important. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Good point. Yeah. So step two, and now this is going to get a little technical, uh, but this should also refer back to your agency service standards and policies. And I'm going to use an example here, though, too. Uh, so this is really about an agency adopting a policy to determine when there is a desperate impact or disproportionate burden placed on a population. Uh, so say you have a service area that is 35% minority population. But you're removing a route in an area that is considered 55% minority population. Well, that difference there says we've probably got a disparate impact on our hands. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're removing a route that is 55% minority when your service area itself is only 35% minority. Uh, and so at this point, you know, as a transit agency, this is really when you should go back and look at your proposed changes and see how you might be able to modify these to mitigate any impacts or avoid them or provide the justification as to why this is necessary or part of a larger problem. And we'll get into that here in the next couple of steps too, but what happens when you might have a disparate impact or disproportionate burden on your hands? Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a, important to note that, you know, planners should not treat this as a checklist exercise or a federal reporting requirement exercise only. I mean, leave time in there to 
tweak your service as a result of what you find. Um, and I think, you know, you get into that a bit in these future steps. But I think that's important to note that it's not a matter of just saying, okay, we we did the reporting requirement and now we just move on, right? You, you want to, you know, get with the spirit of the reporting requirement in the first place, so. Yeah, and so, you know, really... This should be a policy that's based on your demographics and your service area. Uh, And so step three is building on that and saying, all right, where are the changes between the existing and proposed services today? And so while steps one and two are really about looking back at your administration policies and your service standards, step three is really getting into what specific changes are you making or proposing? Uh, where is the service being added and removed? And yeah. really, where should the overall analysis mm-hmm. be done? And so a lot of this can be done in GIS. There's you know several programs out there available for planners to use to determine kind of a geographic impacts yeah. and socioeconomic impacts as well to these areas. And that really leads into step four, Uh, which is assessing those service impacts using your data analysis at hand. Uh, And FTA here allows transit agencies to use a number of sources. You've got census data, uh, which the American Community Survey provides a ton of data on minority and low-income populations. Uh, However, if you have this available, you can also use your ridership survey data. So maybe you have surveys of all the bus routes in your system, that might give you a better idea of the demographics that use each specific route. Uh, so if, you know, if that's the case, you could see if there's a percentage minority population that uses route number two, or maybe this proportion of low-income population uses route mm-hmm. number two. And here's a general idea of the proportion of impacts if we were to modify or remove uh, route number two. And so what you're going to do here you're going to want to calculate the absolute difference between the impacted populations and non-impacted populations. And you're also going to want to develop that percentage. So going back to the example previously, if you've got a minority service area population of around 35% on average, and you're Mm -hmm. proposing a service reduction that impacts 55% minority population, now you've got that disparate impact on your hands again. And the same could go for a low-income population scenario as well. So there might be different thresholds, though. And this really depends on where in the country you are, where in your state, and what your city or county might look like from a racial or income perspective. So you might have counties with 80% minority population. You might have counties with 10% minority population. And that's ultimately going to indicate what your thresholds will likely be. So Hunter, I have a question. Um, Obviously, low income and minority populations are considered in this analysis. What about elderly populations? Is that because was that is that included in this analysis or not? So that's not part of the Title VI analysis Mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. However, I do think, you know, because of the aging populations, they tend to be a little more Mm -hmm. reliable on transit it might be a good thing to go ahead and include, especially if you're already pulling ACS data, you could certainly yeah. just download the 65 and over yeah. data yeah. sets. Yep. Interesting. 
Okay. And and one thing to also note here is we've talked a lot about service reductions, mm -hmm. and you certainly don't want to impact a greater proportion of minority or low-income populations when you're doing service reductions. Uh, but we also want to make sure if you're doing any type of service improvements or additions, that you're not overwhelmingly adding service to non-minority or non-low-income mm -hmm. populations. So go ba going back to that example of if you have a service area with 35% uh, minority on average and you're doing service additions in an area that is 5% minority population, that might also still be considered a disparate impact because now you're adding service to an area that is quite lower in minority mm -hmm. population right, than right. your that makes general sense. service area is. And the money might be better spent elsewhere. You know? Right. And yeah. so after you've done all that, after okay. you've done your analysis, um, what you should really do is if you have any identified impacts or burdens, you should go back and say, all right, what potential changes can we make to mitigate or avoid these impacts or at least, you know, just bring them into the system average in line with that, you know, service reductions might be necessary sometimes, mm -hmm. but we want to make sure that all populations are being equally impacted. And so after you've done your mitigations and any changes uh, you might make to avoid any further burdens, then you should really go back and do the same analysis again just to see what differences there are between your original changes and now your kind of revised proposed changes here. So what if the transit agency cannot identify any methods for further minimizing or avoiding those impacts or disproportionate burdens? Right. So if the transit agency finds that even after, you know, you did your further analysis and alterations of the service modifications, that you still find that minority or low-income riders continue to bear that disproportionate share, then the FTA really wants you to provide substantial, legitimate justification for the proposed service change and to show that there really are no alternatives that would bear either less impact and still accomplish the agency's legitimate program goals. However, this should really be a last resort method of implementing service modifications, uh, especially as we've noted before, you know, because low income populations generally tend to be more transit reliant. So you want to make sure that if you're having to make those disproportionate modifications, uh, that you have a legitimate and substantial reason to be doing so. So something I was just thinking about, and we talked about, you know, changing services, which triggers this analysis. Um, I, I'm wondering, and I don't know if anybody has the answer to this. I'm wondering if transit agencies after COVID hit and they saw, you know, such a substantial drop in ridership and really had to shrink a lot of their services, hoping that it would be temporary. Do those temporary service reductions trigger needing to do needing to do a title six analysis do you know right so they didn't for the first year so if we're thinking back to march 2020 or so uh, that was that first year was considered mm -hmm. an emergency where transit agencies pretty much had no choice 
but to offer the best service right. they could with the resources they had. Now, it is the transit agency's duty <clears throat> after that year yeah. to go back and say, all right, what is going to be our more long-term service plan now? And we should do a Title VI analysis to determine what the previous COVID service was versus what are we operating now today? Mm-hmm. What's going to be our new service moving forward, basically? Okay. Good information. Thank you. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And one question I had back to when we first started chatting about this and what's what is considered a major service change and the reporting requirements. So I know you have to do the Title VI reporting at a minimum every three years. But also, am I understanding correctly that in addition to every three years, if during that three-year period you meet that major service change requirement, that does trigger the Title VI analysis as well. So you could end up doing it multiple times within that three-year period. Is that correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're doing this however many times you're making service changes. You can have like a full-time Title VI planner at a transit operator. Yeah. Some, <laughs> yeah. some agencies wow. are making service changes two or three times a year, and you're doing a Title VI analysis every single time uh, based on the nature and the magnitude of those changes sometimes. Wow. Yeah. That's very enlightening. Yeah. I mean, your your minor scheduling impacts, you know, maybe you're adjusting a couple minutes based mm-hmm. on traffic. That's not going to warrant a, a Title VI analysis. But now if you're shifting mm-hmm. routes to different roads, if you're adding or removing service, that's gonna that's what's going to prompt the service equity analysis. Yeah. 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 Okay. Makes sense. And really, you know, one thing we've touched on a couple times now is the public involvement. And I think this is why public engagement is also critical in developing those service modifications. It should really be integrated into the Title VI analysis itself. So, you know, if we're kind of breaking this down into schedule of events here, some agencies will pull the planners together, develop those proposed modifications, run the Title VI analysis at first to see what your impacts are, and then they'll take those service modifications out to the public and see, you know, what, what's their feedback on these changes. And then once you've, you know, taken the public's input and adjusted based on the feedback that you've received, then you want to go and rerun the Title VI analysis again before taking it to your board or, you know, other authority that's approving the service modifications. So you might be doing this analysis two or three times based on how many public input sessions you've got All right. uh, and how many opportunities there are to modify the service through this whole kind of service development process. Yeah. So really, yeah, the last step here, I think, goes along with most planning professions is make sure you are documenting all of this. One thing I would recommend is developing a technical report memo or a template of some type that you can refer to, an SOP that staff can refer to when they're doing a Title VI analysis, um, you know, they would include a summary of the methodology used, some of the agency policies, service standards, any any maps that you're making, or any charts of the 
impacts that are being brought about and then what those final service decisions were so you know you've done all this work leading up to your modifications but what happened at the end of the day what got implemented and you know you want to make sure that you have all of that documented yeah and i i think the theme here is you know transparency and consistency right you know um all throughout so no it's good so this is obviously a lot of information and I know we talked about some potential resources, but just as a reminder for our listeners out there, do you have some additional recommended resources for planners to review? Yeah. I mean, some of them we mentioned and I would definitely consult the FTA's website. The 4702 circular again is a great resource for planners. Uh, the FTA has got examples of service equity analysis Title six slides and a presentation. And, you know, you can also reach out to us here at Modern Mobility Partners. We're happy to help transit agencies. <laughs> we'll, t- we'll take that plug. Well, yes, we are. Um, also <laughs> mentioned that we will provide yes, these yes. resources in the show notes for everybody, for all of our listeners. Um, so, Hunter, mm-hmm. this was a really good yep. recap and uh you know, a lot of good details about the steps to completing this analysis. Um, you talked about some agencies have to do this several times a year because they're implementing service changes. How long does this process typically take? And second part to my question, and once completed, what happens then? Does it Does it have to be approved by FTA or does it just get submitted to them and kind of like accepted by them? Right. So I think the timeline really depends on the nature of the service modifications and impacts you're making and whether you have, you know, a standard procedure for doing these. So if you're doing them three times a year, I could bet that someone in that agency knows how to do this within a day or two, especially if it's just for very minor impacts, you know, small route deviations, things like that. That shouldn't take more than a couple of days, especially if you already have your census data downloaded and ready to go. Now, if you're looking at more Mm large-scale service impacts or you're working with areas where you know there's going to be a greater proportion of minority or low-income population, that timeline is really dependent on the scale of your modifications and, you know, the overall magnitude of those impacts and really the necessity that you might have to revisit any modifications should you find a desperate impact or disproportionate burden. And now, of course, this only applies to the service equity analysis portion itself. And actually identifying those service modifications and doing the analysis and engaging the public and finalizing all those plans, that could take, you know, several months or even a year to implement sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) this could take a while. So really, once that service equity analysis is complete, you want to coordinate with your agency staff that handle the Title VI and other related programs to ensure that they have a copy of the analysis findings and, of course, the final decisions. And I guarantee you with all the other requirements that there's someone in your agency that handles the entire Title VI program itself. Uh, Within some agencies, this may be within an Office of Diversity and inclusion or something related to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But ultimately, 
These documents are something that the FTA will review during their triennial audit with the transit agency itself. So does that mean that you don't have to wait for FTA to officially approve the Title VI document in order to make the service changes and that they're just going to take a look at it during the triennial audit audit every three years? Right, especially if your likelihood of causing those disproportionate burdens or desperate impacts is fairly low. That's something I would always present to your board when you're doing final service recommendations, but that's not necessarily something that needs to be submitted to FTA Mm -hmm. every time or coordinated with. Um, However, if you know that you're doing a service modification where you're going to have to provide justification, then that might be a time Mm -hmm. when you want to consult with your FTA region coordinator. So going back to that on-demand and rural discussion, we hit on it a little bit that they're not required to um, necessarily do all of the things that a larger urbanized agency has to do. Um, But there's we still are recommending that they complete a Title VI analysis, right? Like there are still some standards that they that they have to um, adhere to. Yeah, I mean, so really they need to meet those general requirements we outlined earlier. Uh, but even though you're not operating fixed out service, it still might be a good idea to do the Title VI analysis. Uh, so maybe if you're operating a microtransit service, you know, the polygon or area that you're operating within relative to the remainder of the county you want to look at what are the demographics of that polygon look like and you know is it an area with lower or higher proportion of minority population is an area with lower higher low-income population i think it's still really insightful and important Mm -hmm. to understand you know wherever you're providing service relative to where you're not providing service uh, today. Yeah, and real quick, Connor, can you explain to our listeners what you mean by microtransit? <laughs> yeah, so microtransit, you can also think of it as on-demand transit, but it's generally when a transit rider is able to pull up an app on their phone and instantly call a ride to their destination. And, you know, in a county, they might determine or identify an area that they want to operate in. It's maybe a mile or two square mile area. Uh, So really, the user should be able to use it just like a Uber or Lyft service, basically. Mm -hmm. So even if you have that area, you still want to make sure, okay, who lives in the area, who's Mm -hmm. maybe commuting in the area, relative to where we're not providing that service. Well, thank you for tuning in. That was a lot of information. Um, If you are a nationally certified planner through the American Institute of Certified Planners, this episode is eligible for AICP continuing maintenance credits. Um, All you have to do is go to the American Planning Association website at planning.org and under the AICP CM providers search, uh, do a search for Modern Mobility Partners and you will see all of the podcasts there. If you want to learn more about how Modern Mobility Partners can help you, as Hunter mentioned, you can find us at modernmobilitypartners.com. And I should also mention that we'll have a free downloadable cheat sheet from today's episode up there as well on the six steps. And as always, don't forget to subscribe and even better review our podcast. 
We like to say that the best way to thank us providing for providing this free and fabulous content is to share our podcast and only give us five star reviews. No other reviews are allowed. <laughs> and five next. star or bust. Yes. Um, and so you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to your podcast. And with that, we are over and out. Bye. Bye, y'all. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Modern Mobility. If you work for an organization that has implemented innovative and practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges and are interested in being on our podcast, email us at podcast at modernmobilitypartners.com. Want to learn more about our consulting services? Check us out at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast.